All right, Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah chapter two, the, 3. The past two weeks, uh, we've been in this uh, series, Rebuild, talking about rebuilding things in our lives. First week, we talked about how rebuilding begins with prayer. Rebuilding begins with prayer. And we talked about the importance of prayer. We, we went through uh, Nehemiah's prayer there in chapter 1 and just went through and uh, looked at it as a model prayer of how we should be praying to God. We talked about uh, why he prayed, how he prayed, and when he prayed, and talked about how he persistently was going before the throne about this petition, about this thing that was going on, which was what? The walls of Jerusalem had been destroyed, and it was burden in him. It was, it was a burden to him, and he wanted to go. He wanted to rebuild these walls. Last week, we looked at how rebuilding requires vision. It requires vision for us, understanding, okay, what is it that we want to do? We looked at uh, the detail of his uh, vision, how he was prepared, how it was difficult, all these different things. Uh, rebuilding requires some sort of vision or mission or goal, which is accomplished through faith. And so now here in week three, we're now in chapter three, we're going to talk about how rebuilding brings unity. So last week when we saw this, Nehemiah at the end of chapter 2, he, he gathers the people of Jerusalem. We think that it's probably somewhere in the center city or somewhere where people would come and hang out. Maybe there was shops around the corner or maybe it was a place to where you would buy groceries or maybe it was the center of the city where the well was, where everybody liked to hang out and get water. Whatever it was, he went there and he declared and said, Hey, look at the state of your city and of our city. Look at where we're living. Have any of y'all ever had that moment in your life when you were, um, your room was really, really messy and your mom came in your room and said, look at the filth of your room. Am I the only one that's ever had that happen before? My wife still sometimes comes to me. He's like, Nate, look at, I have a little hangout area outside. I'm like, it's called like our mud room, but it's kind of where I play video games and I study but it can get messy sometimes, and she'll still come out and say, Nate, it's a mess. You need to clean up. Well, Nehemiah is going here to these people and saying, this area is a mess. We're in a mess. Look what's going on. Look at our city. Our walls are destroyed. Let's come together and rebuild. And so now here we are in chapter 3, and guess what? They begin to rebuild. And tonight we're going to talk about something very interesting. We're talking about how rebuilding brings unity. Rebuilding brings unity. I don't know about y'all, but some of my favorite movies to watch, I'll just name a couple because a lot of them have the same idea, and it's talking about one group of people accomplishing a goal. Usually that's considered a sports movie, right? Like, Remember the Titans. That's a, that's, a, that's a great movie. Have any of y'all ever watched Remember the Titans? All right. Anybody else cry when Bertier got hit by the car and Fire and Rain's playing in the background by James Taylor? Like, that was a very sad moment. And then Julius comes in and talks to him and says, the nurse says, hey, you can't be in here. This is for family only. And he's like, can't you tell? He's my brother. And I was like, oh, my gosh, that was very, very heart-wrenching. It was very good. Uh, other movies like that, Hoosiers. Any of you ever watched Hoosiers? Miracle on Ice? All right, how about this one, A Bug's Life? You like that movie? Come on, that's a great movie. It's a great, I think it's the most underrated Pixar movie of all time. Yes, it is. For the long, it is. 
They need to make a sequel. They need to make a sequel to it. But still, it's this idea. There's a group of ants that are trying to come together in unity to defeat the grasshoppers. Even there's a scene in the movie where the grasshopper, what was the, what was the big grasshopper's name? Hopper. Hopper. Wow, that's such a catchy name for a grasshopper. But Hopper, they come to Hopper and they say, why in the world do we need to go back to the ant, to the ant hill? Why do we need to go back there and grab that food? We have enough food. We don't need to go back there. And he talks about and discusses the fact that if these ants knew that if they could be unified, there are more of them than there are of us. If they came and unified and understood that they could stand up to us, then we will no longer get, be able to get food from them. So they understood unity and the power a unified body has. And that's same for us. Unity is important for us, not only on a corporate level. We could talk about the importance of unity in business or the importance of unity within teams, but also in other ways as well. Some of you probably read Nehemiah chapter 3 this week and were very confused at why everybody was mentioned and they were talking about all the different areas of this wall. Maybe Nehemiah wanted to communicate the importance and said that every person that built this wall mattered. Leaders are good at that. Leaders are good at recognizing those who put in work. You're not going to want to follow somebody who doesn't want to recognize you, right? Maybe Nehemiah wanted to communicate the importance of delegation or the importance of empowering those that were around him and said, hey, it was not just me who did this work, but there was this humongous group of people. Maybe Nehemiah wanted to communicate that normal, ordinary people did this work, not some special qualified group, but a bunch of unqualified people. I personally believe, or I want to believe, that the reason why this chapter was written was to remind us all of the power of unity. And the fact of the matter is, is that we all matter. See, 2,000, even more than 2,000 years later, we're reading about some people that we have no idea who they are, but they started building a wall. Nehemiah saw them as important. The fact of the matter is, is that we are all important. We all bring something to the table. Some of you come here tonight and says, man, I have no gifts whatsoever that can be useful for the church. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Every single one of you have a gift that God has given you for His glory. You see this here in Nehemiah chapter 3, and it's still true to this day. But what I would love to show us tonight is that if we want to accomplish stuff, both personally in our lives, but also corporately as a body of believers, it's going to take unity. See, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you get a group of people around a common goal, right? It's amazing what you can accomplish when you get a group of people around a common goal. I can do you one better, though. It's indescribable what God can accomplish through a group of people who have one thing in common. Unity in the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see this two ways. 
We're going to see this two ways. We're going to see personal unity with God. But then we're going to look at corporate unity with those who claim God. So corporate unity with God's people, second. But first, corporate unity or personal unity with God. Personal unity with God. Look at that. Until you are submitting and yielding yourself to God on a daily basis, you will never live in the fullness of unity with God. So this is what happened to these people here in Nehemiah chapter 3. We need to understand the importance of where they were living. Where were they living? What city? What? Jerusalem. Thank you, Weston, way there in the back. How you doing, dude? Weston got baptized on Sunday. It was pretty awesome. Jerusalem, they were living in Jerusalem. What's so important about Jerusalem? What was Jerusalem? It was Zion. What was, what was Zion? What was Jerusalem? Who dwelt in Jerusalem? David. The people of God. It was the city of God. It was the city of God where they were dwelling. They were dwelling in the city of God. So they were dwelling there in the city. But yet there was still stuff that needed to be rebuilt. So they were with God. They were in the city of God. But truly, they weren't living in the fullness of that city because that city and their walls were destroyed. See, there is a possibility that you can be one with Christ, that you can be saved, and there can be a lot of stuff that's wrecked in your life. It is possible for you to be one with Jesus, and yet you still are not living in the fullness of who you can be in Christ Jesus. So until you are submitting and yielding yourself to God on a daily basis, you will never live in the fullness of unity with God. What does that mean, fullness of unity with God? What does it mean to live in the fullness of God? See, when Jesus saves you, you become one with Him. He comes and lives inside of you, and you go, and you're now with Him. It's not just this one-way thing. You, literally, right now, if you're saved, who would say in this building right now that I am saved? All right, guess what? Ephesians 2.6 tells us that we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So you are not just the fact that Christ is in you, but you are in Christ. Galatians 2.20 tells us that I have been crucified with Christ. And nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ now lives within me. You are one with Christ. Even 1 Corinthians 6.17 tells us, But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Because of salvation, you are one with Christ. But that doesn't mean that you 
particularly can, are always living in the fullness of that oneness. See, for some of these people, if we understand in Nehemiah's day, a lot of them had been gone off to captivity. They were either in Babylon, they were in Persia, they were in different areas. And after that captivity was over, they came back to Jerusalem. They said, guess what? I'm going back home. And they thought it was just enough to be back home. Guys, it's not just enough to say, hey, I got saved. Or, hey, I'm home. I checked that off my list. It's not. These people were living in derision. These people were living in a, in a destroyed city. They had no protection. They had no walls up. They could have easily been attacked. They could have easily been destroyed once again and taken back into captivity. They weren't living in the potential and the fullness of the city that they were dwelling in. In the same way, some of us are in a place in our lives to where, yeah, we're saved, and guess what? Man, um, I, I have repented of my sins. I have trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And you know what? There were times in my lives that, yes, I, you know, I was uh, pursuing God. I was in my Bible on a daily basis, man. I, I loved God. I loved His Word, man. I loved preaching. I was faithfully coming on a weekly basis. And then you gradually were fading away and fading away and fading away and fading away. You're still saved, but you were living in that backslidden condition. And then there can be this whole fun discussion of, well, how long can you stay backslidden? And was that person really saved? But the fact of the matter is that, hey, that's a lot of people is, man, I got saved. The Lord saved me. And I once was pursuing Him, but sin entered my life. I neglected the things of God. What I thought was important was church, but I don't think that anymore. And that's what had happened to these people. They had forgotten the importance of living in the fullness of where they were. See, even though you're in Christ and He is in you, you still have the ability to not live in His fullness. How do we see that? You can see that really in a couple passages of Scripture in the New Testament. One of my favorites to look at because it somewhat is like just describes my life sometime. Romans 7, 15 through 20. Read the, or listen, or yeah, Romans 7, 15 through 20. Listen to this. For I, this is Paul talking about himself. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Have any of y'all ever been there before? You want to do good things. You want to do good to others, but you don't do those things. You actually do the complete opposite of the things that you want to do. And the things that you don't want to do, the things that you hate, are actually the things that you end up doing. It's almost to the point to where Paul's almost schizophrenic here in talking about this. But he was truthfully saying, hey, I am a man that is saved, and there are times in my life that there are good things that I want to do, but I do the complete opposites of them. Galatians 5, 16 and 17 say it like this. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. So basically, the things 
of your flesh, the things of your sinful nature, go directly against the things of the Spirit. And so it's a daily battle that you have between your flesh and between the Spirit. Romans 7 or Romans 6 tells us that you need to be mortifying or killing your flesh or killing sin. John Owen, a great theologian, would put it like either you kill sin or sin will be killing you. So you're in this place and understanding, yes, you are one with Christ through salvation. But the question that Nehemiah asked these people, the question that I want to ask you is, are you really living in the fullness of that oneness with Christ? Are you living in the fullness of that unity with God? Jesus says it in John chapter 7, I believe. It says, if you're saved, then out of your belly. I, thought, I always thought that was funny. Some, some translations say bosom. Some translations say your innermost parts. Out of your gut, basically, will flow rivers of living water. Does anybody, can, that, can you describe your Christian walk as, man, rivers of living water are flowing out of me? Unity with God, unity with the Spirit, yes, it's found when in salvation. But the fullness of that is not completed at salvation. The fullness of that is not just done at salvation. The fullness of being one with Christ is fought for on a daily basis. And some of us don't want to fight that fight. Some of us just think it's enough. Well, God saved me. And you know what? There was a time when I was in high school ministry, man, that I was on fire for the Lord. I led a Bible study. Man, I was, I was pursuing Him through my college career, and, and in my life in college, I was pursuing Him. But man, now I'm working 45 hours, 50 hours a week, and man, I don't have as much time for that anymore. No. As soon as you become lazy, as soon as you don't understand the importance of that unity, that fullness of that unity with Christ, then you let your guard down. Eventually, you're going to end up like these people were in Jerusalem, and you're going to look around at the walls of where you're at and be like, man, what has happened to where I'm living? My life is a wreck. My life is destroyed. You can't take a break. Unity with Christ is important. See, Jerusalem or Zion is salvation. These men and living, women were living in salvation, but even though they had salvation, they were not living like they should have been. So what does it mean then to walk in the fullness of unity with God? Fully yielding to God and His Word. See, personal unity with God is found when you desire the things of God above the, the selfish things that you want. 
Personal unity with God is found when you desire the things of God above the selfish things that you want. See, we want or you want to get even. God says vengeance is mine. You want to harbor unforgiveness. God says forgive. You want to make somebody look bad. God says don't gossip. You want to be like the world. God says be holy. You want to find satisfaction through this world. God says find satisfaction in me. You want a relationship to be the answer for your codependency. God says no. That's me. You want to be comfortable in this life. God says, if you want to follow me, then you'll have to pick up your cross and carry it. And I'll tell you what, that's not comfortable. That is very uncomfortable. See, the things that your flesh, your old nature, your sinful nature, what they want are never the things that God wants. And unless you get up on a daily basis and remind yourself through prayer, through scripture reading, that your flesh is crucified, you will never be able to live in the fullness of unity with God. It's basically Psalm chapter 1. My favorite psalm in all of the psalms is Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law does he meditate, does he chew on it, does he, on his law does he meditate both day and night. This man is blessed, he's blessed because he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. Understand that. If you're living in the fullness of your unity with Christ, your leaf will not wither. If you're meditating on His Word, if you're understanding the importance of unity with Christ on a daily basis, your leaf will not wither, and in all that you do, you will prosper. See, when you come to the realization that some things need to be rebuilt in your life, some habits, some tendencies, some activities that you find yourself participating in, when you find that, okay, I need to rebuild those parts of my life, or maybe you're like, I just need to demolish them and and, and put things of God in those areas. See, it's when those things happen, When you identify them, it will push you to find and walk in the fullness of God. It's then when you begin to love what God loves and hate what He hates. Your heart breaks for the same things that break His. And in those areas in your life that were calloused and that were bitter, there begins to be brokenness and surrender. See, really rebuilding, yes, it begins with prayer, but rebuilding begins with a fresh unity with God. A re-understanding of what it means to be one with Christ. And that's what happened to these people. 
through Nehemiah, Nehemiah came to them and said, Hey guys, look at your life and look where you're living. It's a wreck. So what did they do? They said, we're going to change this. We're going to get up and we're going to build. And it started with each individual person looking at themselves first. It didn't start with, well, when them over there do it, then we'll do it. When they do it over there, then we'll start building on our stuff. No. They drew a circle in the ground. They stuck themselves in the middle of that circle, and they said, you know what? I'm going to start with myself. There are things that I need to change in my life. And see, the second part of this doesn't happen unless the first part's there. So the second part of this is finding unity with God's people. You can't find unity with God's people until you find unity with God first and foremost. I remember my dad would always say it like this. You can't get these relationships right until what? You get this relationship right. Which that's true. Some of you may be thinking to yourself, like, why in the world don't people want to hang out with me? Well, maybe if you get your relationship with the Lord right. Maybe if you understand that there's sin in your life. And then you look and you're like, man, well, you know what? I am arrogant. I am prideful. You know what? I do gossip a lot. Man, maybe that's the reason nobody wants to talk to me. You work on that. You repent of some sin that's in your life. Fellowship with others become a whole lot easier. And so that's the second thing that we see. We see corporate unity with God's people. See, when God begins to rebuild some things in your life, He will bring you, he will bring you alongside others that have the same purpose, the same desires, and the same vision that you do. And the main way he does that, especially through the, the one way he does that through God's people is using God, his church. See, if you want to live in the fullness of unity with Christ, it's going to push you to find a body of believers that you're going to want to love and want to fellowship with and want to come alongside and want to build each other up. See, that's my desire here at this place, at this church that we become a community that isn't identified by our hobbies or our coolness or our nerdiness, but that we are identified as a community that wants to lead each other into a deeper walk with Jesus. See, we are here to encourage one another, but also to challenge one another and be able to challenge one another in such a way that when in challenging another person, they're not going to get butt hurt because we called something out in their life. I pray that we become a community where we learn how to forgive those who may have hurt us and learn what it means to love like Jesus all the time. And in the times we don't love like Jesus, we have the freedom to call those people out and say, hey, you need to get that right in your life. Some of the greatest things that people have done for me in my life is when they've called me out on my bullcrap. 
can name a couple times in my life where I was running and I had a potential to run from God. And there was a phone call that came from one of my best friends and said, hey, Nate, you need to turn that around. Like, that's not right what you're doing. You had heard it first? Yes. Did I want to get upset at some people and say, you know what? No, I'm not. I'm right. They're wrong. But it was the greatest things that happened in my life. That happens when we are truly unified as a body of believers. See, when you read through this text, you will see there are a bunch of different people here. You can go verse by verse. A lot of them have names that I can't even announce and pronounce correctly. Some of you would read these names and you'd read them out loud and somebody around you would think that you're speaking in tongues. Okay, I thought that was a funny joke. Nobody wanted to laugh at it, though. But see, there's a bunch of people here. There are some that are rulers, and there are some that are high priests. There are men, there are women, there are professional craftsmen. There are people that are from outside of the city that came in to help. There were young people, there were old people. But see, they all had one thing in common, which was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And they all had that vision because they were walking in unity with God. We will never have unity in the church of Jesus Christ if we are all living for ourselves. These men and women weren't living for themselves. They found purpose in something greater than themselves. They lived for the great. They lived not for themselves, but for others. So we're going to look at some things in this passage of Scripture. And I know that's been like almost the whole entire time. You're like, Nate, you haven't read anything or you haven't even mentioned this chapter. We're going to get to that now. (laughs) We're going to look at some things that are found in a group of people that are living in unity corporately. The first thing that we're going to see is is that when you're living in unity as a body, if when you're living in unity as a body of believers or you're living in uni- unity corporately with those that love God, the first thing that you'll see is, is that complaining will be at a minimum. Complaining will be at a minimum. If you look at verse 11, verse 19, verse 21, verse 24, verse 27, verse 30. Multiple people. Let's just look at verse 11. It says this right here. Chapter 3, verse 11. It says, there's another fun name. Malchijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pathamoab, repaired another section and the tower of ovens. So not only did they repair a tower, but they repaired another section. And if you read down more, there's another section that's repaired by them. So not only did they repair one one wall or one gate of the city, but they repaired multiple areas within the city. While some other people, you know how many they repaired? Just one. Yet these men, they did not complain whatsoever. Because Probably more than likely, if they did complain, Nehemiah would have put it in here because he talks about some people that didn't even help out with building the wall. And we'll get, that to la- we'll get to that later. 
if Nehemiah was going, he could have, he would have put it in here. But complaining was found at a minimum. See, some people did more work than others. And guess what? Those who did more work didn't complain about it. If you are walking in the fullness of unity with God, you won't complain when others don't do as much as you do. Complaining was found at a minimum. See, when unity is found corporately, not only will complaining be found at a minimum, but flexing will be found at a minimum. Or bragging. Or talking junk. Or, you know, talking about how good you are. It happened to my dad this week. Me and my dad loves to play golf, and every single time he plays golf well, he calls me and he wants to brag about it. And literally, I don't want to hear any of it because he's now 70 years old and he plays from tees that are really too far up. And, you know, he, he hits the ball a mile still and he just wants to call and he wants to brag about it. And I like, I'm like, Dad, straight up, I don't want to listen to you brag. I don't want to hear this. You're just, you know, talking about how great you are. I don't want to hear that whatsoever. Any of y'all ever like that? Know that people in your life that you know that when they call you, all they're going to want to do is brag? Come on. Come on, that, that, I got people like that in my life. Do you really want to talk to those people? Like when they call you on your phone, you just want to hit the ignore, right? I do. Do y'all not have people call you anymore? When was the last time y'all were on a phone conversation? <laughs> do y'all even remember how to talk on the phone? <laughs> I love talking on the phone. See, I'm not a good FaceTime person because I look like, I look at myself in the FaceTime and I'm like, man, I am really, really, really ugly. I am horrible looking dude. People don't need to look at, usually the only time I FaceTime people now is to show people my son and how awesome he is. That's really all that I do. But no, the truth is, is that bragging here was at a minimum. You see that in verse 20. Now, how many of y'all are reading out of the ESV? The great godly ESV. I know I got, I'm kidding. It's, they're all great. Unless you have like the NIV, right, Brett? Um, but, <laughs> but how many of y'all are reading from the ESV? The ESV reached verse 20 like this. It says, After him, Barak the son of Zabbi repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Elishib, the high priest. All right? It said, just, it says, the dude, the son of Zabbi, he just repaired. All right. It took out, I think, it took out an adverb. Does anybody have another translation that puts a word there before repaired? Weston, what does yours say? Carefully repaired. That Hebrew word could also be translated vigorously, zealously. I think it was the, uh, the Christian Standard Bible says that he vigorously repaired, that he carefully repaired, that he zealously repaired. So this dude, he did a really good job in preparing this area. More than likely, some uh, the uh, commentators believe that his area of the gate and of the wall was the best built area of all of the wall. And all we know, and the only reason why that we know that it was nice 
was because Nehemiah said something about it. See, pride doesn't bring unity. Bragging doesn't bring unity. It breaks unity. It brings division. See, thinking that you're too good for someone or, or too good to hang out with someone, it's, it's not a good quality of a man or a woman of God. This dude, this, this man, he, he built a really good part of the wall. But he didn't put himself above anybody else. There was a group, though. There was one group of people that thought that they were too good to build a wall. And if we look at it, I think it's in verse Verse 5, this group, we'll read it, it was, um, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but the Tekoite nobles did not repair or did not build because they did not want to stoop low to serve the Lord. They thought they were too good to work. They thought they were too good to be a part of it. Some people think they're too good to go to Sunday school. Some people think that they're too good to actually listen through a service. Some people think they're too good to actually come to church. But you know what Nehemiah did? He identified those who weren't living in unity. There was purpose for every single name being written where it was and why it was being told. And there was purpose that Nehemiah looked and he deliberately put these people down and said, they did not want to stoop down to serve God. Haters are going to hate. It's just true. But in the house of God, if we're living in unity, those who hate should be called out. No matter what you do and no matter what the ministry does, there are going to be things that you don't like. And the worst thing, and this is one of the worst things that have happened in the church, in church in general, in 21st century Christianity, and it's something that I believe more millennials and Gen Zers struggle with than any other people. There's something that has happened in the church that they don't agree with. Instead of working through it and hashing it out, they've said, you know what? Because of that decision that was made, or because of that person that was hired, or because of that person that was fired, I'm done with this place. And I'm going to take my ball, and I'm going to go play somewhere else. They did me... They did something I didn't like, and because of that, I'm too good for them. And it happens everywhere, all the time. That's why you see so many churches around in the South. Well, you know what? I didn't like the passion that they had. John MacArthur talked about it one time, and he said that that was one of the biggest difficulties within modern Christianity where people church hopping or people going to different churches. And this is what John, Pipe, or John MacArthur said about it. He said, maybe if you stuck around a while, maybe the problem was them. 
And instead of you leaving, if you would have just stuck around and waited a little bit, they would have left. But no. We want the immediate gratification. We want to make a statement. These men were trying to make a statement. These nobles were trying to make a statement and said, you know what? We're too good for that. And what happens is Nehemiah calls out and identifies those who are not living in unity. Now, some of you may ask Nate, this is all well and good. Yes, we need to have unity with God, and we need to live in the fullness of that oneness with Christ. Yes, we need to understand that it's just not living in Jerusalem, but we need to understand that our walls need to be built, and we need to be actively living a life where we're wanting to kill sin, and we're wanting to live in the fullness of this life in Christ. Yes, we get that. And yes, we understand the importance of 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 corporate unity and the, and the importance of living as a unified body of believers and being able to agree to disagree and being able to uh, be able to take um, reprimand from others and be able to take uh, discip- discipline from others and being able to take people call us out for our sin. Yes, I, we understand that. But <laughs> we're here. We're coming on this Thursday. We're a part of this ministry. What does that mean for us? What's the desire for this ministry? You know, this has given me some thought thinking about that question. Because I've thought about it a lot this week. Because some people would think, well, our desire is that we want to help people find community. Because I think that's something that we do really well. Uh, Some friendships, some strong friendships have been built from the people in this room. Like, for some of you, y'all have seen some people in this room like three times this week, four times this week. And I think that's awesome. You know, some of y'all found roommates because of this room. Some of y'all have best friends because of this room. Some of y'all have found... uh, relationships, the love of your life from this room. That was me. Some of y'all have found it from this church. You're going to be like, well, God really hasn't used it. Yeah, God's... If you think about it, God has used First Baptist Church Indian Trail a lot in your life. And I'm thankful for that. But... As I thought, like, okay, yeah, community is a part of that. But that's not the main reason and the main desire of our church and this ministry. Like, it's a, it's a big part of it, but if, if, if community is just the main thing, then all we are is a social club or a country club. And I used to work at a country club, and the people that were at the country club that were some of the biggest snobs, and I don't think we're that. We're too cool for that. So then I thought, well, what is it? And this is what I truly believe that the desire of this ministry is. And I believe that, I pray that this is the desire of our lives. And that we would taste and see that God is good. 
that we would taste and see that God is good in our life. But that desire will never be fulfilled if we think that other things taste better than God. That desire will never be fulfilled if you think that being on a platform will give you, will give you satisfaction. That desire will never be fulfilled if you're looking for a relationship and you've replaced that relationship instead of God. And I pray that the desire for us is that we would taste and see that God is good. And through tasting and seeing that God is good and that He is all satisfying and He is above all and that He can satisfy every desire within our heart and within our lives, then you know what will come from that? Community. Friendship. Mission. Purpose. What you want to do with your life will flow from that. See, when you taste and see that God is good and you desire after Him and you pursue after Him and you delight in Him, He's going to give you the desires of your heart. And what that means is, is that it's not going to be like, well, He's going to give me the things that I desire. So if I delight in Him, you know what's going to happen? I really desire to have a relationship. The relationship's going to pop up. No. When you delight in God, when you taste and see that He is good, and that's something that is continually going on in your life, eventually the things that you desire are going to be the things that He desires. So really, it's kind of like this switch swap, this switch switcheroo thing, like ninja trick, and basically your desires become God's desires. I said a mouthful there. Taste and see that God is good. The people of Jerusalem, they understood that where they were living was destroyed and needed to be rebuilt. And instead of complaining about it or blaming each other, they worked hand in hand for the good of each other. We don't do that here in America. We just blame it on the other party. We either blame it on the Democrats or the Republicans. And when we see struggle within ministry or within church, we don't go to work. What we do is we blame other people. Same thing happens at your job, probably. You identify a problem or you think, well, the reason why that didn't clean was because of that person. Well, you realized probably that it was dirty. So maybe you should have cleaned it instead of trying to put the blame on somebody else. In closing, I have a couple questions for us. As our abbreviated band comes up and we begin to sing this last song, as we prepare for that, I have four questions for us.
Are, are you one with Christ? Are you truly one with Jesus? Because maybe for some of you, the reason why you see this terrible life that you're living in is because you aren't saved. Some of you base your salvation upon a decision that you made when you were six, seven, eight years old. And you just made a profession of faith probably at a VBS like I did because my, a bunch of my buddies were doing it. And maybe you think that the reason why you're in the mess that you're in is because uh, you think, well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, you say, well, I'm reading my Bible and I'm doing this and that, but I still, maybe, maybe it's just to the point where you're like, you're not even saved. If you aren't one with Christ, none of the things that we talked about tonight can be accomplished. Question number two. Are you living in the fullness of unity with God? Or are you sitting around in a city that's destroyed and you're not attempting to rebuild any of the walls around it? Question three, are you living in unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Or are you like those nobles and you don't want to because you're too good for others? And question four is, why do you come here? And I love the fact that a lot of you come here and you're like, man, I have friends here. And that's great. But my desire is that the reason why you come here is because you want to taste and see and know that God is good. As we sing these songs, I want you to reflect upon these questions. If you need to get saved, you can come and find me. I'll be over here singing. This altar will be open. There's somebody that you need to get right with because you're not in li- because of unity reasonings. Go and make it right. And I hope that you can answer that question on why you truly come. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you. We thank you for your word. God, as we close in song, may we understand that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. That it's your love that leads us to life. And that, Father, you are for the broken, for the downcast. That you are the God who rebuilds. Be with this time now.